the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Major retirement news coming out from Rick Warren. And then how much money in this age of inflation do we need not to not to work paycheck to paycheck? Another mass shooting and later 10 heartaches for pastors. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Friday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good here on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian from Aubrey. It's Friday. It's a beautiful weekend. Summer is upon us. How are you today? I am doing great. I am very excited because Kevin and I are going on a date tonight. We're going to dinner and we're going to watch Top Gun 2. Are you? Oh, I desperately want to see that. I've told you I'm not a big, like, I have to see that movie, but that's one that I want to see. Are you more excited excited. for the the dinner portion of the date where you get to talk and interact with your husband? You get to look at each other across the table, share your hopes and dreams (laughs) with each other? Or are you more excited for the movie in which you sit next to each other and never have to speak to one another? Absolutely the movie. No question. It is the movie. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm excited you for both. Kidding. You know what I like on our date nights? I like a long, luxurious dinner. I'll tell the waiter, like, please come slowly. Please take your time. I want, like, three hours at dinner with my husband. So I'm looking forward to both. Dang, three I hours. I know. I, I want a long, I want to, like, have an appetizer. And then I want to, you know, have the meal. And okay. then I want to have dessert. Like, I'm just, I want a slow slow moving slow paced dinner as if we're in europe or something our weekend is a a wedding tonight and i'm not i have no role i have no role in the wedding so it's really strange i don't i don't remember the last i don't remember the last time my whole family's going and then we've got some baseball but then my daughter's graduation party tomorrow which the weather looks beautiful it's it's all a little crazy and then somewhere you got pre- you got to get a sermon written in there and all that stuff so uh, oh little- i know i gotta write a sermon too this weekend so you and i are both there will be uh, there will be no luxurious long dinner dates <laughs> for me this weekend so maybe I'll, I'll bring my computer and kevin and i can write a sermon together at our uh, dinner date <laughs> seriously seriously i look forward to hearing about top gun i would like to go see it very soon so did i i, I know this is not what we want to talk about but did i tell you i watched top gun one yesterday to like remind myself and you've just watched it recently just watched too, it with right? my kids yes yeah i i'm not sure that it held up i i, I was laughing at a few parts like has acting gotten better in time? Has writing gotten I mean, better in time? You always laugh at the volleyball scene. Like that you one. You always laugh at the volleyball. Like he's in jeans on the you beach did, playing volleyball. You did post. I saw your yeah. post last night, and I actually noticed it when watching it. Like <laughs> Goose dies, and then everyone's like, get over it. You have to move it's on. Like, get back up there. Like send him back seconds. up. It's like the next day. They're like, send him back up. Like, you got to let Goose go. Let him <laughs> like, go. Let him go. Best friend and partner literally just, he just killed him on accident. Like, can we process this grief a little? Yeah, the one guy is like the, the guy in charge of everybody is just kind of like, yeah. this is going to happen. Right. <laughs> the like, other oh. part I didn't like is like when he throws Goose's dog tags in the ocean. I'm like, his wife or kid probably wanted those dog tags. What are you doing? That made me really mad, too, because I felt like it was supposed to be him like letting Goose go. I'm like, this is not... Is this how we dealt with trauma in the in the like eighties? Because it's yep. not very healthy. Just yeah. that's how that's how guys dealt with it. Just push it down. <laughs> go push fight it down, the next get fight. Get back up on that airplane. Who fight cares the if next you have trauma? Fight. There you go. There you go. Well, I hope I hope the next one here. I hope there's lots of lament and lots of dealing with their Me feelings. Too. Me while too. Up this better be like two hour long therapy session. That's all I want <laughs> Top Gun Two to be. <laughs> all right. So major news in the uh, evangelical world, Aubrey, uh, and this is a teammate here. Uh, at Salem. He has a daily show here on AM 1160. That being Rick Warren. Rick Warren announced his retirement date and revealed his successor uh, at Saddleback Church. And the first, my first thought, he's being replaced by, um, 
Echo Church's Andy Wood, who will take over on September the 12th. So that's kind of the move here in the Christianity Today. They ran an article and they got a picture of the four of them being Rick Warren and Kay Warren, along with Andy Wood and Andy Wood's wife, uh, Stacy. Who will, by the way, be the new teaching pastor at Backpack. So that is very exciting. So I have to be honest. My first thought when I saw the picture was, dang, that guy looks younger than me. younger than us he might be he is he's 40 so not too much younger than this but it's a big move and uh here's how christianity today describes this after more than four decades the pastor of one of the largest and most influential churches in the united states is ready to sit step down and he has named a young couple to take his place the video went out to everybody and andy wood who is 40 uh and as you said his wife stacy wood who is the teaching pastor at echo church they will have the same roles uh, at Saddleback. But Aubrey, it's got to be crazy to think about, um, like, it's one thing to think about, all right, the new guy and this, that, but I, right. I want to take a minute to reflect upon uh, a husband and wife who planted a church 40 years ago, Yeah, becomes one of, if not the most influential yes. church uh, evangelical church in America. He right. writes the most famous book, a Christian book there is, uh, being the purpose driven life. He is world known. Like he's got to have some reflection going on right now going, yeah, that was a good run. That was a good I, run. And I want to cheer I, him on right now as he makes this announcement. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, can I, I it is impossible. I mean, you and I have planted churches, mm-hmm. but it is impossible to think about, you know, four decades and then growing it to the size that it grew to, the amount of lives that were ch- touched, the amount of transformation that happened, the amount of pain. I'm sure that, I mean, some of it we know that Rick right. and Kay have carried. Some of it we don't know, just the nature of the role and leadership that long. Um, but then to retire on such a... A high note, I mean, that sounds bad, but like retiring with such a great legacy. I imagine there is some bittersweetness, but some deep satisfaction as you think back on what God has done. And obviously, I'm sure Rick Warren's going to go be a a professor emeritus somewhere or do something wonderful. Like, this is not the end for Rick Warren. But um, it, you know, so many of these megachurch pastors, we've covered these stories, are going out in like horrible dumpster fire flames. And so to see a man just like actually retire because it's time and then pass the baton to a new couple, it's a beautiful story. And I do think we need to cheer him on for his legacy, his endurance, his running the race and, and for his wife Kay's as well for how hard, you know, she's been a partner. She's been a voice in ministry. She's been a leader and um, what a great, yeah, what a great thing. You and I talk a lot about, the people, the pastors we should be following are the ones who've like run the race well over a long period of time. And this is a great example. Yeah. He wrote in an email to the Saddleback congregation. Now it is time for us to pass the torch on to a new generation who will love, lead and pastor our church family in the decades ahead. And and it brings up a couple different things. First of all, um, I think Rick Warren is just going to be super invested in other stuff, right? You already read about him doing stuff in Africa right now. He's yeah, yeah. he's doing stuff all over the world. I would say, Rick Warren, my favorite interview we've ever done on The Common Good. He sat with us for like 45 minutes live. It was unbelievable. That's so cool. That was you and Ian, right? Because I, I didn't get to, oh, that's In amazing. his retirement, I'm sure he'll come back out. Yeah, uh, he wants to hang out with me, obviously. So. But secondly, and the article talks about this, it, it is... Eric Wood and I'm sure his wife Stacy are going to be phenomenal and we pray for them yeah. and cheer them on. But yeah. it's going to be a different place. Like to be in a place like Saddleback now, if yeah. you're them, you've got to be nervous, but also the church has got to be got to be like, all right, after 40 years, what's it going to be like now? Like I'm good, I'm very interested to watch the next iteration of Saddleback Church here. Yeah, I mean, I do. I feel like what a mantle for the the woods to like wear. It feels that feels like a heavy mantle in a lot of senses. It feels like a really, you know, it's they're not just going to like some podunk church. Like the world is going to be watching. And so I love podunk churches, but like we need to definitely be praying for them, praying for this transition. And yeah, I'm sure there are people that are going to be on the fence. Like, am I staying or am I going? Right. But it, again, I do think if Rick 
is cheering them on, then that will give people a lot of confidence that they can trust in this new leadership. I think you're right. It's going to be interesting to see how things change over there. Yeah. Hopefully for, you know, hopefully continue to improve and grow in fruitfulness and faithfulness. That's right. And with all the flaming out that we see, Mm -hmm. all of the scandals that we talk Mm -hmm. about, all of the uh, bad breakups, if you will, between churches and pastors, uh, let us primarily cheer on from everything on the outside looks like it doesn't mean there weren't problems. And of course there were, but from everything from the outside looks like a, uh, a job well done, a race well run. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what Rick Warren does in this next season and Mm -hmm. to see this next season of Saddleback. So I thought that was a great spot to start today because we do so much bad news about churches here. This feels like a, uh, a really big win. Here's the, here's the thing. Let me, let me, let me bring in some depressing news. Okay. Weekend, summer, everything's fun with that. Yeah. Yeah. On the flip side, uh, I paid $5 and 55 cents for gas the other day. I am telling you, Brian, it is seeking to destroy us. Like, I'm going to be very real right now. I don't have any gas in my car. I We are out of our gas budget for the month. Payday is not for another week away. And so I've been driving Kevin's car because he's got the most gas right now. I literally, I'm on empty and we don't have money to pay. No, we could take it from another. Sure, 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 like, sure. We're, we'll be okay. But like, it is breaking the bank right now, but it's not. And I know this is what you're talking about. It's not just gas. It's the inflation on everything. It's like everything. Groceries are wild. Paying, paying to feed three boys that are home now for the summer. And now I'm like, oh, I wish they were back at school where they could like, at least <laughs> they get a eat meal. lunch for free. Yeah. Oh, it's crazy. The other day, uh, Carrie called me and our neighbor told her, hey, gas is about to go up another 50 cents later today. And uh... so... This was like uh, probably middle of the week or so. Come and on. sure enough, we took all three cars and we went and filled them That's a up. a good idea, actually. And then uh, sure enough, two hours later, the gas stations all around us were wow. 55.79 or whatever it was. <laughs> Oh man, I we should run out and do that. That's not a that's not a bad idea, but unbelievable. Yeah. So anyway, like you said, um, uh, eggs are up, milk is up, food yes. is up, yes. everything's yes. up right now. So here's my question: You kind of touched on this already. <sighs> Has it changed anything for how you guys are living? How's it changed you at all? Yeah, I mean, it, it honestly has. Like we, you know. We're, you and I have talked about this and joked about it. We're living on like pastor's money and radio right, money, right. right? So we're not like swimming with the big fishes here. But like God has always provided. We've been fine. I still trust God is going to provide. But we have done things like Kevin is, we live close enough to our church offices. Kevin's been walking to work every day. I've been taking his car because he gets better gas mileage than me. We're um, definitely like just not getting as many groceries as we got before. Again, we're fine. Yeah. Like, no one's starving yeah. in our yeah. house, but we're just and and of course, like just making more intentional choices. Like I, so I keep our family budget. Usually, one person in a marriage is like just more financially. That's me. Pra- yes. uh, okay. Yeah. In charge of the mm-hmm. finances. One thing that I'm doing is, I mean. I, we have a budget. We've always had a budget since we've been married. But I am like every day paying attention to what's going out, if anything's coming in, like to the like penny, yeah. because we cannot err right now on like spending too much. Like we have to be right where we are or yeah. else there's just no cushion at all, at all, at yeah. all, at all. Yeah. Right? And that's where I want to go off here because I think, you know, I, I feel the same as you, right? Like, well, our life, we're, we're not about to lose our home, right? Like we're okay, yeah. but it yeah. hurts. Yeah. And uh, we actually have some yeah, pre some planned driving trips this summer that you're like, well, we don't want to cancel them. We're still going to do them, but now it's going to be so much yeah. more expensive than it was. And so lots of people are feeling this. Everybody's feeling this. But with that in mind, Aubrey, I want to read... Um, let me read a headline out of Bloomberg News, and I would just like your um, I would like your your take on this. Okay, okay. One third of Americans making two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year live paycheck to paycheck. Survey finds. 
All right, let me read some more details for you here. More than a third of Americans uh, making $250,000 say they're living paycheck to paycheck, talking about inflation. Some 36% of households taking in nearly four times the median U.S. salary devote nearly all of their income to household expenses, according to a survey. It's particularly true among millennials who are now in their mid-20s to early 40s. More than half of top earners in that generation report having very little left at the end of the month. The Mm. $250,000 plus income bracket roughly represents the top 5% of earners in the country. Now, living paycheck to paycheck, they say, doesn't necessarily mean hardship, Uh, Only a fraction of high earners, one in 10 reported issues covering all of their household expenses. So they're talking about real estate here. They're talking about this. What do you think about that uh, that survey right there? I mean, how do all these millennials have so much money? (laughs) That's what I'm thinking. I have a lot of money. I, I guess it goes to show that the more money you make, more money, more problems. Like you're, you've got a bigger house mortgage, you've got more car payments. Like you, you just adjust according to your budget. And so, if your budget is as big as two hundred fifty thousand, which is a lot of money, then the expenses go up, I suppose. But I'm also like, you know, I, I can. I think it's okay for you and I to say we're not living on that kind of budget. And so <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little like. Uh, hey, give me your budget. I'm gonna help you exactly. out. Exactly. Like, mama can mama can show you how to have money at the end of your at the end of your pay period because you should be able to live yeah. off of that. Like, a family of many people should be able to live off. Of I don't. Uh, I do make two hundred fifty thousand dollars. It's just not a year. It's a couple years. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you make two hundred fifty thousand dollars per X number of years. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, that's what I want to a- encourage people here, Aubrey, is uh, budgeting and uh, priority setting. Like, I find yeah. it almost a little bit, um, it's insulting, I guess. And people might look at what I make. And if I told them I, I go paycheck to paycheck, they might say that's insulting. Mm-hmm. But it's, yeah, it's, it's sure. a little bit even insulting to read uh, somebody makes two hundred and fifty grand and is living paycheck to paycheck. That that screams to me. That's a that's a spending issue, right? That's a spending issue. A hundred percent. That's a spending. So issue. encourage people whether they're making twenty five grand or two hundred and fifty grand. Aubrey, encourage people. Yeah. <laughs> one of those you know more of than the other. <laughs> you talked about budgeting and how you and your husband yeah. are intentional and uh, help yeah. people understand brass tacks, even to how you do it. How what does a budget mm, look okay. like for you guys? Yeah, and I'm sure there are apps for this, but we, you know, we got married in the early 2000s before apps even existed. So we created an Excel spreadsheet and we, yeah, and we have all of our, you know, you start with like mortgage, right? Because that's it, and bills that have to be paid. So there are line items for that gas. Our kids now have expenses that they haven't had things like braces mm-hmm. and things like uh, saxophone lessons. And of course, we we want to have a line item for giving and we want to have a line item for saving. And then any debt that we have, we have a line item to pay off that as much as we can monthly. And so you just and then we have a little we call it like miscellaneous or breathing room, yeah. which is like for date nights or for the new pair of tennis shoes you need or for the haircut or whatever it is. Things that aren't necessarily necessities, but you want to be able to to get those things. And we just frankly and very strictly operate by our mm. budget. And if we are out of quote unquote our spending money or our whatever money for that pay period then that's Mm. it like we can't there's you just don't do it beyond that so we don't go out to dinner or we don't go see that movie or we don't buy that new pair of shoes until the next pay period and that can cause some impatience and some frustration at times i'm not gonna lie but the nice thing about it too is then especially in a marriage the budget becomes sort of the third party and so if you and your spouse are arguing over finances you can be like Oh, but the budget says. And so the budget trumps my emotional desire to go get a brand new cute jacket this month. You know, Um, I'm not saying it solves all financial problems, but it certainly helps if you have thought through intentionality with 
and agreed upon a budget that you stick with as a family, it just helps make these seasons much more manageable. That's really good. What I don't think people understand, and and my wife and I have a love-hate relationship with our budget, right? Like we do use an app, the Every Dollar app. uh, And sometimes it dictates spending. Sometimes it just uh, reflects spending, depending on how well we're sticking to it. But when you can get a budget working, I think here's what people don't understand, that if if more people understood this, they would be much more likely to stick to it and and do it. A budget doesn't restrain you. A budget actually gives you freedom. It It does. It absolutely I don't have to feel guilty about going out to dinner right now. Right. But I just know this is the one time we're going out to dinner this week or this month. But you know what? I can go gladly put my credit card down to pay for it because we've budgeted for it. We know it's there. As opposed mm-hmm. to other times where you're like, oh, I don't know if we can afford this. Like, that's where the yeah. tension comes in. So uh, totally, it's a hard time out there, people. It's a difficult time, yeah. but we'd encourage you. Uh, a budget's a good thing. It provides freedom. So, yeah, so go for it. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. There's a couple different things we do on Fridays. Anybody who has been listening to our show knows that there are a few different things we do. We do a top five list. We've got a great one later on today that we're mm-hmm. going to do. I love our top five list. That's a Friday Me staple. Me too. They're so fun. Another yes. thing we do is something that Ian and I used to do at the beginning of the show. Uh, and then we took a little break from over COVID. But now we've brought it back. That is our executive producer, Keith Conrad. He goes and scours the internet for stories that just make us laugh, that make us gasp, that surprise us. Yes, yes. And uh, I, I'll never forget when we first started this show, we heard from a couple different pastors who said that this is one of their favorite segments because they <laughs> use it. Uh, they use them in sermon illustrations. Oh, that's amazing! And, uh, oh, hilarious. And so the, we call this uh, just, just crazy stories from the internet, and we're gonna yep. just read them. And here's the way this works. Aubrey and I have not read these yet, so we do not know these. These are sight unseen, and uh, here we go. All right, I'm going to go first. I'll start us today. All right, let's this hear it, This one's Brian. out of California. Man prevented from graduating over $4.80 fee <laughs> receives diploma 60 years later. Stop. A 78-year-old California man walked across the stage alongside his high school's class of 2022 to accept a diploma that spent 60 years locked away in a file cabinet. Ted Sams, age 78, said he was prevented from graduating in 1962 because he was suspended five days before the end of the semester and missed a final exam. Sam said he made up the exam over the summer, but was told he couldn't be given his diploma until he paid $4.80 for a book he failed to return. Over the years, I complained to my kids a number of times about how $4.80 kept me from having my diploma. His old school, San Gabriel High School, invited him to finally accept his diploma at the class of 2022 graduation ceremony. Sam's was presented with his original diploma, which had spent the previous 60 years locked away in a file cabinet. Why did he not just okay. pay the four dollars and eighty cents at some point over the last six years? That's what I'm wondering. He, he's probably like just like standing his ground, you know, like he just was like stubbornly refusing to pay it. And look, he didn't have to pay I it. I also so want well to know done. why he got suspended for five days right before the I, end. That's the part that I was mostly intrigued by. Let's let's talk about that because a five day suspension is no joke. Yep. yep. Let's see. It was back in the. It was back in what the sixties. So he's probably like smoking in the boys' room right. or something like that. Okay. Here's another one. This is a nightmare. A nightmare come true. Another story out of California. A coyote sneaks into California home through doggy door. Oh. Yep. A coyote was able to sneak into a California home by using its doggy door. The coyote, who is roaming around the Woodland Hills neighborhood in Los Angeles, entered Julie Levine's home through her doggy door after he leapt over a wall. Security cameras placed outside the home captured the incident, which lasted minutes before Levine's dogs chased the coyote away. Levine says she will now close her doggy door and she will no longer allow her dogs to go outside alone. I think he probably went down the hall, saw what he was up against, and probably skedaddled out of there. That's then when the dogs realized they caught the scent because they are beagles and they have incredible noses and went nuts. That's why I decided to look at the security camera to see what all the hubbub was about. And it turns out it was a very large coyote. Recently, a Florida woman captured video of an otter chasing a coyote. <laughs> he's on and he's going to try and bite my calf muscle. 
So I don't think I told you this story, did I? Last week, Carrie and I and Madeline, my oldest daughter, were out back with our two dogs. Oh, no. And our, like this could have gone really badly. All of a sudden, we see this blur from like our side. It was a coyote ran through our yard. <gasps> no, 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 no. Yes. Are you serious? Carrie and I sprinted and grabbed our dogs, but the, no. I think the coyote was probably scared of us, so didn't stop. Yeah, probably. And went through the neighbor's yard, the next neighbor's yard, and uh-uh. out the other side. Uh-uh. But it was terrifying. I was like... I don't want to live somewhere where coyote I sightings know. are like a normal part of life. I'm, I'm not a fan of this. Especially with little dogs like I have, for sure, for sure. All right, it feels like we always have at least one that has to do with the lottery. This is out of Australia. Australian man gets winning lotto ticket for birthday, splits money with the gift giver. Oh, that's nice. An unidentified man from Australia was given a winning scratch-off lottery ticket worth $100,000 for his birthday and is splitting the money with the gift giver. The man who resides in Sydney... Uh, got a scratch-off ticket for his 70th birthday from one of his closest friends. I said to him, if I win big on this, I'll share half the winnings with you. The next thing we knew, I won the top prize of $100,000. We were in absolute <laughs> no shock. We're going to split it straight down the middle. I'll take 50, and so will he. We'd already planned to go out for dinner again with the same group of friends and shout, <laughs> everyone, free food and drinks on us. <laughs> The man said he has a couple of ideas of what to do with his share of the money, including house renovations, a new car, or going on vacation. Uh, there you go. I, I'm glad that, I they, that they agreed beforehand to split it. Yes. Like I was like, what would you do there if you hadn't discussed it? And then I you was won. thinking that too. Yeah, and and good that he's sticking with it too, because I'm sure when he said I'll split it with you, he didn't think he'd actually win. So I'm sure there was a minute when he's like, "Damn, why <laughs> did I say I share?" But good, good job. I love thinking about two Australian men going, "Everyone, free food and drinks!" <laughs> like that. I want to be there. That sounds so fun. Money, 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 money. All right, here's a story out of Indiana. Uh, drunk driver crashes. Head straight to dealership to try to sell damaged car with missing tire. <laughs> Police say they arrested a driver who is 3.5 Whoa. times the legal alcohol limit. Wow. After at least five people called 911, officers say the call started coming in around 4.40 p.m. on Monday. They say witnesses reported seeing an SUV hit the median of the Lloyd Expressway near the main street exit. They say the crash caused a flat tire and the car to smoke, but the driver kept going. Other callers say the driver was all over the road and now missing a front tire. They say he eventually stopped at a car dealership and appeared super drunk. Employees told police the driver, 30-year-old Jordan Mattingly, was trying to sell his SUV. Police say he had swelling and scratches as if he had just been in a crash. They say Mattingly smelled of alcohol and almost fell several times. Officers say he tested .291 on a breathalyzer test. Police say inside the SUV they found four loco cans and a can of White Claw. Mattingly is facing several charges. He is the son of the manager for the Miami Marlins and former professional baseball player Don Mattingly. There you go. Wow, they buried the lead there. I feel like that's the part of the story that's crazy. Mattingly, for the last time, get rid of those sideburns. Look, Mr. Burns. I don't know what you think cyberns are, but... Don't argue with me! Just get rid of them! That is it. All right, last one from Italy. Have you ever been to Italy? No, I would love to, though. Have you been, right? I have. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. Uh, Italy, both pilots flew the Airbus A330 asleep. Yes. No. Both pilots on board... Uh, ITA Airways flight from New York to Rome were asleep at the same time and failed to maintain communication with air traffic control for about 10 minutes. It took place on the 1st of May. It was scheduled afternoon service between JFK and Rome. Uh, The departure was just like any other, but things went quiet in the cockpit towards the end of the flight. As media reports indicated that both the first officer and captain were asleep for a brief period and did not respond to air traffic control. They were somewhere over France and in contact with Marseille control. Uh, a rather busy center, especially in the summer months. Not to forget, the Airbus was at cruise altitude in an autopilot while the incident took place. The first officer was actually approved to sleep. What's known as controlled rest, a brief period in which a crew member could take a nap. But the captain was surely not approved to follow. <gasps> Luckily, it was short-lived. Communications were reestablished just before the French authorities were set to dispatch a couple of fighter jets. <laughs> 
to find Come out on. what was happening. The Top jet gun. landed safely. Italian media reports uh, reports that the captain was dismissed from his yeah. service after that flight for breaching safety. The pilot, however, denied his nap allegation and stated that there was an issue with the mm. radio communication <laughs> system, and thus mm. he couldn't reply. Yep, interesting. Yep, yep. That sounds yeah. like my kids making excuses. No, no, it was yeah. the radio. I wasn't. I wasn't asleep. It was the radio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your stewardess speaking. We regret any inconvenience the sudden cabin movement might have caused. This is due to periodic air pockets we encountered. There's no reason to become alarmed, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your flight. By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? The re- the wild thing is nobody on that flight knew that it was happening, right? You never Oh, uh, that is a ter- terrifying story. Yeah. Terrifying, terrifying, terrifying. Brian, I, I don't even want to talk about this, but there was another mass shooting last night uh, outside of Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa. Three people were killed outside of the church. Apparently, there was a college group meeting, and um, the shooter is one of the people that were left dead. But I, I mean... It's just hard to even know what to say anymore, Brian. Like, we are just... It's too many of these stories. Right in a row, right in a row, right in a row. And... and yeah, that's the weird part. It's just, pain, it's just painful. Yeah, they just keep happening, which is really mm-hmm. scary, right? Like... Yeah. I mean, that one in Tulsa the other day that we talked about, that was a yeah. big... I mean, those five people. And then, yep. you, you know, this church or, you know, you just start to mm-hmm. forget, like... The one in Buffalo was like, what, a month ago? Maybe not even? Not even? No, not even a month ago. And then there was the one in Dallas. There was the one in Laguna Wood. Like, it is just like, boom, 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 one right after the other. And, I, you know, I got to tell you, I don't know how much more bloodshed it's going to take for something to change. Yeah. I was actually listening, Brian, uh, to NPR yesterday, and they were saying that Massachusetts apparently has the lowest... Um, the lowest mass shooting uh, numbers in the states. And a few years ago, they went very hard on gun control regulation only around uh, automatic, like AR-15s, weapons that could not be be controlled. Okay. And um, they, they decreased their mass shootings by like, I think it was 40% because it used to be really high. But since they had those really strong gun control um, regulations, they decreased their mass shootings in a massive way. And the statistic was that if we could just do that, like just target the AR-15s and control those, we would save, I think I think the number was 20,000 lives oh. a year or something like that. Like it was a significant amount. And, you know, again, you and I keep saying we are not gun control experts but I, I, I this is just getting ridiculous to me that we can't have a conversation about what to do it feels like we've said this multiple times since the uvalde thing the other uh shooting the other day yeah uh, it feels like um how to put this guns are not the only answer like getting guns and doing something about guns is not the end all here like there's mental health yeah. issues there's yes. uh parenting issues there's all sorts of very complex issues but i think it's disingenuous not to suggest that guns aren't part of the conversation yeah absolutely. and i think people who say they're the only thing we should be talking about are wrong but i think people who say that guns conversation should be off the table are also wrong And so let's try to have an adult conversation. We know our politicians will not have an adult conversation about this. No, unfortunately. But until they're pushed to by the rest of us. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think one of the sad parts about this in reaction, not obviously the shootings are the sad part, but the reaction is that Mm -hmm. like none of us expect anything to actually change. Uh, I have zero hope that anything is structurally going to change, but it doesn't mean we don't push our our lawmakers to change. So that's how I'm viewing this when it comes to guns in particular. I've said it to a few people. I'm okay with you telling me that guns aren't the issue, aren't even the primary issue. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but they're an issue. They're part of the stew that we've got to figure out here. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to put it. And I think, unfortunately, like what I just sort of noticed in my own soul today is I went, oh, there was another shooting. Mm-hmm. When are we going to do something about this? And I, it's like I'm not even like grieving for the people who died anymore because it's just becoming like 
oh yeah of course there's another shooting well what happens when it's the shooting in your town with your kids mm-hmm. with your loved ones i i just it i don't know i just feel like enough is enough and you're right like we need to we need to press our leaders to do something and like you said i mean i think that's a really good point brian that may not be the only part of the solution, but certainly we have to admit it's part of the solution. Mm-hmm. So can we do something? Just let, let's start somewhere, basically. Let's start somewhere. Well, Brian, turning to another pretty heavy story, something uh, I, I don't even know how to explain this, something beautiful in the midst of such heartache, going back to Uvalde in Texas. I saw a story on Good Morning America. It was on Twitter as well. There is a man who made custom caskets for the school shooting victims. I saw victims. that, yeah. Oh, Brian. His name is Trey Ganim. He's the owner of Soulshine Industries, a company that specializes in custom caskets and urns. And he made 19 customized personal... Oh, God. I mean, I can't even get the words out. Like, small caskets for kids. And if you go online to see these pictures, like, he met with each of the family members to talk about what the kids were passionate about. And so... You see a Superman casket Mm. in an image. You see a casket with like dragons and butterflies in an image. Um, You see one that's like TikTok and and pop culture, pink accents in in another uh, casket. And of course, I mean, the devastating part is the size of the caskets. Like they're just, oh, they're just little. And like, you you know, uh, that's, you can't even speak about that. But he, he talked about what it meant to create something beautiful with this family as a last resting place for their little ones. There was, there was another cute one about like a dinosaur holding a flashlight with a pickle. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and it's, it's not like that changes the pain, right. right? But I think to know that you're giving these families something really precious mm-hmm. Um, and some some moment of just like, I don't know, like delight for their souls, a way to honor their children in the middle of this. I just felt like this was such a powerful, beautiful story. Apparently, around 30 people pitched in to help make the caskets as well and then also brought food and, and did some other things for these families. So they didn't even have to pay for them. And they did 19 caskets in three and a half days. Wow. Um, yeah, but you know, I, I just, I think there's something so lovely about that story and this man's willingness to, to minister to this family in such a unique and and different way. Um, but you know, you can imagine if you're there at the funeral, like what a devastating funeral to be at. Like no one should be at those, those funerals should not be happening. But to be able to just honor that little precious child and kind of put a smile on your face when you see the casket, uh, something really meaningful about that, don't you think? Oh, 100%. And you you touched on this. There's something, if you've ever been to the funeral of a child, seeing the size of a mm. casket that just... Yeah, it's awful. It's it, awful. It, when you see a casket, there's a... There's so the, like any funeral, right? There With that comes the, the closure, the reality of what has happened. But also, when yeah. you see a kid's a casket... Uh, it always makes you go, that's not right. Like that shouldn't yeah, be, exactly. that shouldn't be. Yep. And what a great, you know, like we also talk about like you, people look for what can I do? What can I do? What can mm-hmm. I do? This guy yeah. going, here's, I'm a, I, I can make things. I'm a woodworker. I can mm-hmm. do this. What a blessing for mm-hmm. families there who are in the midst of unimaginable yeah. grief for someone to take yeah. this one thing off their plate, this one, right. Um, right. You know, in in the grand scheme of things, this one small thing off their plate. What a what a yeah. wonderful gesture. And it reminds us that you don't have to do everything, but you can do something, mm-hmm. right? When people are yeah, hurting. That, yes. I, I think that's so good. So so maybe like t- to follow his example, you can you can think about the things you're good at and what can you take what you're already doing, what God has gifted you to do to bring somebody a moment of joy in the middle of your heartache. I think it's a good a good um a good example for all of us. So yeah, well, you don't have to do everything, but everyone can do something. Uh, for anyone who's listened to the show, Brian, they know that you and I are both pastors. Right. We've got a lot of pastors that listen, or if not pastors, we've got ministry leaders and churchgoers that listen to The Common Good. And 
you know, you and I have talked about things, you know, in a funny way and in a real way that are devastating to us as pastors, especially over the past couple of years. I found actually an article at Church Leaders that talks about 10 heartaches for pastors. I wanted us to talk about, but before we did that, Brian, what are some of your heartaches as a pastor? Yeah, that's hard. I, I think... When I think about what causes me the most hurt or the most stress or the most whatever, uh, I, I the first thing that came to mind is not just people who leave. Like, I do think there's reasons to leave a church and there's reasons. Yeah. But I think it's when it when see if this makes sense. People that I feel like I have relationship with people who that I feel like uh, I've invested in people who I feel like we've connected with over time who leave in a way that feels flippant or yeah, like just kind yeah. of a ghosting. Like that is, that's yeah. number one for me. It's, mm-hmm. that's a real it's not even the leaving. Like, cause like I said, people leave, like it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's the leaving of relationship. I think it's the, mm. cause it's in those moments where as a pastor, you start to feel really lonely of going, yeah, oh, maybe right, I don't right. have friends here. Maybe I there right. is this this divide that people mm-hmm. talk about. Like I never want to buy into that. I never want to think that there mm-hmm. is. But that's the moment it feels it. So I think that's the no- yeah. if, if it were what's the number one thing? There's other things, right? When your church yeah. isn't growing, or when yeah, you know, people give you that stinging criticism or whatever mm-hmm. else. But if you ask me, what's number one? I think it's it's the leaving. It's it's the it's the very that kind of very specific leaving. What's it for you? Yeah. What's number one for you? I would I would have said that as well. I think a second one I would add would be, um, you know, and you know this, Brian, just being in leadership for a long time, every once in a while, someone's like secret life or secret sin mm. comes out and you just had no idea. That's true. And that to me is so devastating for a number of reasons. One, just the fact that like, oh, you were living the secret life and I thought you were a different person. I feel duped and naive. So some of it is about how it makes me feel as a leader. But some of it is like, wait, I saw God at work in your life. Like I saw God doing these incredible things. But this whole time you had this really dark kind of private life going on. And that's that's rare, but it does. I mean... You know, the decades Kevin and I have been ministry, it's happened a yes. handful of times. And, it, you know, some cases are very ugly and very criminal and very scary and sad. Um, and that can range from just like a, an affair to like a, a horrible addiction yeah. to like, oh, you were molesting children. Yeah. You know, I mean, and those that's heartbreaking yeah. as a pastor. Yeah, when you like, hear things. Yeah, I, uh, I think of stories where you hear so-and-so was having an affair or, you know, mm-hmm. and you're just like, cause then it also make and not to make everything about us, but it makes you question the effectiveness of your ministry and your church. Like, wait, <laughs> people who have totally. been under my leadership, quote yeah. unquote, are doing what? Like, obviously yeah. it should just point us to sin and whatever else, but, right, but right, it right. does end up making you ask those questions. Like, wait, mm-hmm. what's and I, another one I thought of, this is a good therapy session for us before we get to the list. <laughs> another one I thought of is just when there feels like general apathy, yeah, like yeah. apathy and it's hard. I apathy of faith, but also just apathy of community of church of like oh, yeah. whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I would rather there be a lot of tension than a lot of apathy because apathy. Yeah, that's interesting. You know those seasons I'm talking about. You 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 do yep. the benediction and say amen, and it feels like five minutes later your church is empty, and you're like, yeah, what are we doing totally. here? Like what's going on? Yeah. I've I've certainly had seasons. I've had seasons where everything's rolling and great, where everything's bad. Yeah. And the ones that I look mm-hmm. back on the least are like the apathy. Like, what's going yeah, on? Yeah, that's so. so true. And and you feel like sort of you're the only one carrying like the vision and the mission yeah. because you're like, does anyone else care? I guess I got to just keep going. That can feel that can feel draining as well. This is a good therapy session for us. Really okay, is. so Brian, here's uh, here's what Church Leader says. This is written by a guy named Chuck Lawless. Ten heartaches for pastors and he he makes it very clear pastors aren't perfect we mess up okay so we're not i don't think you and i are ever saying like oh we're better than sure. the other people it's not about that we're just talking about some of the the work requires heartache at times so here are some of the aches uh one oh this is close to what i said we mourn when marriages fall apart mm-hmm. um usually we hear both sides of the story that's really true we're privy to both the anguish and the sin and we've seen the pain that divorce can cause 
Two, we hurt when young people make decisions that lead to trouble. Three, we occasionally beat ourselves up when our sermon wasn't nearly as strong as we thought it would be. Mm -hmm. We're our own worst critics. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, Four, we sometimes grieve the sin of others more than they do. Five, we ache when our church must carry out church discipline. Uh, In all my years of ministry, few situations were as painful as removing a church member who chose to ignore attempts at guidance and reconciliation. Mm. I felt like I'd failed in reaching him as a pastor. Six, we struggle when the churches we lead aren't growing. You and I mentioned that. We Seven, we sometimes hurt alone when we see the loneliness and struggles of our families. So this is about like a personal family uh, pain that pastors are carrying. Eight, we quietly grieve funerals, mm. um, especially for people who show no evidence of Christian conversion. Nine, we wrestle with loneliness and we don't know how to develop strong friendships. And 10, we often feel guilty for expressing any of those thoughts. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good one. Do any of those uh, stand out for you, Brian? Yeah, uh, a couple of them. You know, that's funny. The last one that we feel guilty about expressing yeah. ourselves. But I think number nine, and I touched on it before in the people mm-hmm. leaving, just the loneliness that can happen because uh, people have expectations. I don't think most people in the church have an expectation to be your friend as the pastor. But right. as the pastor, you invest so much time into the church that that's where you would naturally look for your friendships. And so yeah. I'm not yeah. a believer that you can't be friends with your ch- church people or any yeah. of that. But there is – being a pastor at times can be a very lonely deal. And mm. uh, you can kind of feel on an island and uh, it's in those seasons that are hard. Like there have been seasons where I have yeah. not felt on an island. I felt completely supported and connected. And totally. Totally. But there are seasons where you feel very alone, and that's difficult. That's those, yeah. It's so funny. The times that I've thought to myself, I want to leave the pastorate, it's never mm-hmm. been about really hard tensions. It's been about that loneliness issue. It's been about yeah the, the yeah. weird interpersonal dynamics. Those are uh, those are the things that push yeah. me. To be honest with you. Man, those are those are very tricky. Okay, so let's let's uh, spin this a little hopeful for a minute, Brian. What do you tend to do in those seasons of heartache? Like, how do you find the strength to endure? And I know the answer is Jesus, but literally, like, what what do you do? How do you kind of mentally keep going, emotionally keep going? Yeah, t- t- especially to what I just said about um, mm-hmm. kind of loneliness. Uh, I- for me, there are some people that I'm very close to in my church and there are people outside yeah. my church that I'm close to. So sometimes I just need to lean in and be like, okay, no, I do have people and go like, go out to dinner, go grab lunch or yep. whatever yep. else it might be. But then, you know, you mentioned this, Aubrey, on some level, we just have to remind ourselves of a calling that, you know, no, I believe that God wants me doing yeah. this. I believe that I'm in the right place at the right time. And that if that I'll know if I'm supposed to go, but, but like, that's not the time. Like you just have to endure. And so uh, that's it for me. What about you? What's one thing maybe for you? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier in the show today, the, the ministry of Rick Warren, who's um, retiring, I think I do tend to look to like the other leaders around me that have gone before me and endured. And, and in, in some in some ways, I think you borrow other people's like, okay, this will be okay. You can do this. They did it. You were able to, you know, like like pastors, leaders can get through this season. And then it helps like it helps to have, I think, other pastors outside of your church that you can go to and just kind of like, um, I don't want to say vent because that sounds way too negative, but just like share collectively the burden mm-hmm. And then that, I think that gives you the endurance and the strength to keep going. So I guess I would say in community with other leaders is something that is something that has helped me. And I know Kevin for sure to keep That's going. A good one. It is Friday, which means we're going to do one of our favorite things to do. And that is our top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. All right, Brian, do you want to tell the people what the top five list is today? Yeah, we were joking about this one on a recent show, and so we thought we would go dive into it. These are the top five uh, well-known Christian books that you've never read. You might have read a chapter. You might have looked at a section for sermon prep. Uh You might have started it and then finished it. Uh, But you've never finished 
the book. Uh, and, you know, they might be ones that people are surprised about because, oh, I thought to be a good Christian, you had to have read that book. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, oh, no, we have not. And so we're going to we're going to just admit it. I was surprised by how many books are on this list that uh, that I could have put on there. I'm like, wow, I haven't read that many books. I uh, I agree, especially when I just kind of looked up like classic Christian books or books every Christian should read. I was like, oh, I need to add a few of these to my library. <laughs> so, um, all right, here we go. I'll start with my number five, Brian. Uh, I'm anxious to hear if you've, you've read this one. Uh, this is one that I feel like people talk about a lot, but I've actually never read, especially going to Wheaton. People talk about it a lot. That is uh, Through the Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. Oh, I have not. I have. Uh, okay. I have some Elizabeth Elliot thoughts that 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 uh, that I'll share with you someday. Oh, but interesting. No, On air or off air? Do people need to hear that? <laughs> so my wife and I, we were we were good friends before we started dating. Yeah. And uh, she was in a small group, and we were it was clear that we were like on the verge of dating. Like there, you know, like yeah. things were transitioning yeah. towards towards yeah. a relationship. Uh, but she was very much torn about it because she didn't want to ruin the friendship, right? Sure. And so we'd go on dates, but then, and this small group of girls at Wheaton, they oh, no. were reading Elizabeth Elliot's Passion and Purity. And so oh, no. she got these big speeches from them. You should just be dating God at this point in your life. And, all this. and it almost cost us a dating relationship until <laughs> she came to her senses. So I like to say that Elizabeth Elliot almost uh, stopped my wife and I from dating. So, Okay. Okay. I like so, it. No, I, I like I, it. I have, That's good. I have that. All right. Number five. This is as old school as we could go. Uh, and and uh, I'm sure that you've not read these either unless you had to have for a class. But I remember there was a day okay, and everyone's like, if you're a good Christian, you've read Calvin's Institutes. Oh, I, have, I definitely have not read Calvin's Institutes. You know who has? My oh, husband. I'm sure. I've, he, I've never even cracked open yeah. any volume yeah. of Calvin's I, Institutes. I had to read part of it for a Christian doctrine class a couple of years ago. So I've read like, a, a, you know, like a main article in it. I'm definitely never it read it. fun reading? Thing. Did you enjoy Calvin's Institutes? I did not. In fact, I was like, what's everybody like John Calvin? What's the deal with Calvin? He does not like himself or people at That's all. That's funny. Uh, yep. Okay. Um, mine is the next one. I'm anxious to see if you've read this one, Brian. This is a, a little book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Never read that. Uh, it is going to be in my honorable mentions list because okay. Uh, okay. it sits on my shelf. Uh, it has been started, <laughs> uh, but it, is, okay. it okay. has never been finished. It's probably never gotten yep. halfway done. Uh, so yes, that is a classic okay. book. That yep. uh, neither of us have read. We're going to just learn something yep. about ourselves here that we have not read a lot of books. We haven't read a lot of books. Uh, well, I've read a lot of books, just not these books. Number right. four. This was big again when I was at Wheaton, I think, because of kind of the okay. the the direction of the book. I've never read Brennan Manning's Ragamuffin Gospel. Oh, Brian, that one's on my uh, honorable okay. list. <laughs> I have. I have never read that either, but that book was a big deal. A big deal. You know who made it a big deal yeah. was Rich Mullins. Who? Oh, that's right. Rich Mullins was, was big was ragamuffin weak. gospel yeah. ragamuffin. He. That's right. It was the name of yeah. one of his uh, albums, I think. Yeah, yeah. And that kind of spawned some of the Shane Claiborne yeah. stuff and other stuff. That's yes. kind of the the direction of yeah. the ragamuffin. I've gospel. heard it's really good. I've heard it's a good one. Okay, ragamuffin uh, gospel. Okay, um, my number three is another kind of classic one and that is pursuit of god by aw tozer oh, never read it okay neither have i it's also okay, wow. it's also on my shelf wow <laughs> i have it on my shelf too that should count for something right like right we have it on, we bought it at one point that feels I'm like i'm just amazed by how many books i have started in my life and then i just was not compelled to finish them yeah, uh, yep. This is uh not mod this is, you know, 30, 40 years old or whatever, but yeah. uh, I have never read kind of John Piper's Magnum Opus Desiring God. You know what? That's not on my list, but I've never read it either now that you it mentioned it. It doesn't surprise it. me that wow. you've not read Piper's Desiring God. <laughs> I don't I don't strike you as a Piperian, do I? That does, does not strike me as as surprising. Yeah, but yeah. no, I've never I've yeah. never I own it like I'm uh yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I own it. Let's let's put it that way. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have another. I have another Piper book on my honorable mention list, though. Um, okay. I have never read. Um, <laughs> I was torn between putting this on number one, and number two. This is going to be on your list too. I'm guessing because we've talked about this. I I'm a little ashamed to say this. I have started but never finished *Mere Christianity* by C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Uh- C.S. Lewis in general is about to make a uh, an, an entrance onto my <laughs> list, but yes, okay. And that okay. was one again. We keep talking going back to when we were in college, but Wheaton, like if you, if we admit it, you worked yeah. at the Wade Center. How did you not? How did. did you not read *Mere I, Christianity*? I just I faked it. I faked it. I faked that I read it. I read enough other Lewis, and I was like, oh yeah, C.S. Lewis once said blah 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 That's blah funny. blah. I tried *Mere Christianity* because I thought like I'm quote unquote supposed to, and I was like, this thing. Yeah. I can't do yep. it. I can't do That's it. That's totally right. I mean, at some at some point, Brian, it's maybe not on us, but on the author. <laughs> like, maybe write a more interesting But there book. is an arrogance, especially at a place like Wheaton and other places where you're like, well, yeah. of course you've read Lewis. Like, Right. Well, Obviously, you've read I got Mere bored. I fell asleep while reading. You know, that right, was it. Right, right. <laughs> uh, number two, and I own it. I have read parts of it. Okay. This goes back to a conversation we started our show with today. Okay. I've never completed The Purpose Driven Life. Brian, you will find that on my list as well. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh man, yeah, that's a that's quite a confession. Yes, because that is the best selling Christian book of all time, of all time, other than the Bible. Besides the Bible, yes. right? So that's a yeah, that's a good I've one. I've never okay. finished the Purpose Driven Life. Okay, so I'm gonna do some honorable mentions. Okay. All right. So I'm going to put this in a category. I'm going to just say like all Donald Miller books. Like I haven't read Blue Like Jazz. Yep, yep. I haven't read the one about chasing dragons or whatever. And he had a moment where like everybody right. was reading Donald Miller. That's right. I skipped it. Uh, I have not read Don't Waste Your Life by John Piper. But the truth is I've never read anything yep, by yep, Piper yep. except for just articles online or whatever. And then Ragamuffin Gospels on my honorable mention as well. It, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but Donald Miller, was it blue like jazz with the cussing pastor? Do you, yes! And you remember who the cussing pastor turned out to be? Was that Driscoll? That was Mark Driscoll. Was it Driscoll? That was like the wow, beginnings okay. of Driscoll. All right, my honorable wow, mention. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Knowing God. That is on my honorable mention. Yep. Uh, okay. Bonhoeffer's Cost of Discipleship. Never read it. Oh, I have read that one. I have read Never that Never read one. it. And uh, Dallas okay. Willard's Divine Conspiracy. And I always felt oh. guilty because my, again, I believe we were engaged at the time. For one of my birthdays, <laughs> Carrie gave me Willard's Divine Conspiracy, wrote a really nice oh. note at the front of it. I tried oh. to read it. Couldn't do it. <laughs> I've never read it either. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Oh, man. Wow. We're terrible. So your number one is clearly here. Purpose Driven Life. M- my number one is Purpose Driven Life. Yeah, I haven't. I, I did start it. I think I read the first chapter and then I was like, oh, all right, I get this yeah. book. And I, it's not about me. It's not so about arrogant. me. <laughs> right, right, all right. right. All my right. number well, one. Did you say your number one? My number no, one. okay. Here we go. Uh, is not just merely mere Christianity. Aubrey, I have never finished a C.S. Lewis book at all. <laughs> Stop. Not even Narnia. Not even Narnia. Not even I watched the, the movie. I watched the movies. No. Uh, not nothing oh, wow. of the Narnias, nothing of mere Christianity, the great divorce, any of it. <laughs> I am making a confession today <laughs> as one who has wow. never finished a single C.S. Lewis wow. book in his lifetime. Wow, that's that's bold. I'm actually really proud of you for being so vulnerable, <laughs> especially in front of like a bunch of pastors who listen and Christians who listen. Never read C.S. Lewis. Never finished okay. C.S. Lewis. Never finished. I almost feel like now you just can't. Like you need to go your whole life being like, and I never finished a C.S. Lewis Like the third paragraph of my obituary. Like, oh, he passed these churches and he hosted the Common Good and he never finished a C.S. Lewis book, even though he went to Wheaton College. He was proud to say he never finished a C.S. Lewis book. It's the end of the show. The end of the week. It's Friday. Friday. Hopefully you have some exciting plans. Uh, And at the end of every show, we love to bring you something to just sort of challenge you spiritually or maybe put a smile on your face. And Brian, I was doing some sermon prep for Sunday. You and I are both preaching Sunday. What are you preaching on? Uh, We are in 1 Peter. So continuing to talk about where Peter says live such good lives that even though people say bad things about you, they can't, you know, Mm. uh, it doesn't stick basically. So yeah, kind of unfleshing that. How about you? We're in a series on the minor prophets, and I've got Zechariah uh, Sunday, which I confess, I'm reading Zechariah, and I'm like, what's (laughs) happening here? So I'm doing a lot of research on these crazy images and symbols that are in this apocalyptic minor prophetic book. It's a little wild. But um, 
one of the, as I've been studying and reading, something sparked in me a memory from a Bible study I did years ago, Priscilla Shire's uh, study, The Armor of God. And she has a list of 10 strategies that the enemy, the devil, the evil one, you might have different language, for um, the our spiritual enemy uses against mm-hmm. us, and I wanted I wanted to just share those with you, Brian, and share those with our listeners and have a conversation about it. Um, so this is straight from her Bible study, but she here's what she did: she pulled a large cross section of people and asked them to reveal the primary ways the enemy attacks their lives, and then put together ten of those like common themes. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So here's um, strategy number one. The enemy strategizes attacks against your passion. She says he seeks to dim your whole desire for prayer, dull your interest in spiritual things, downplay the potency of your most strategic spiritual weapons. Hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts about yeah, that? Yeah, when you first introduced this, one of my first thought was apathy, and that's uh, mm-hmm. that is what yeah. that is. Dulling your, a, a great yep. definition of apathy is the dulling of your passions. And, yeah. uh, you know, kind of, you don't stop believing in the Bible. You just stop reading it. You don't stop believing in the mm-hmm. power of prayer. You just stop praying. You don't start, mm. stop believing in the importance of Christian yeah. community. You just stop going to church. And like, yeah. I think apathy in the Western culture is an enormous one. So yeah, I think she hit the first one right on the head. Yeah, I thought so too. Here's a strategies two and three. Uh, number two, against your focus. Mm. He disguises himself and manipulates your perspective. So you end up focusing on the wrong culprit, directing your weapons at the wrong enemy. I think that's a word for this day and age. Let me read you the next one and then hear your thoughts. Against your identity. He magnifies your insecurities, leading you to doubt what God says about you and to disregard what he's given mm. you. What do you think about that's those? That's a good one. I think we all struggle yep. with self-doubt, self-esteem, self-whatever. Yep. And we forget who we are in Christ. Uh, we forget um, what we've been called to do or that we forget yeah. that the Holy Spirit empowers us uh, mm-hmm. to live these things out. So yeah, these are good. I'm, I'm excited to see where yeah. she goes because those are okay. good. Okay, here's a couple more. Okay, strategy four and five. Four, against your family. The enemy wants to disintegrate your family, mm. dividing your home, rendering it chaotic, restless, and unfruitful. Strategy five, against your confidence. The enemy constantly reminds you of your past mistakes bad choices, hoping to convince you that you're under God's judgment rather than under the blood of Jesus. Hmm. The family one's interesting because that is, yeah. uh, the, the family in many ways is right. Is the, um, is kind of the bedrock, our foundation that everything else comes out of, right? If your family mm-hmm. is not strong, it just rocks everything yeah. else. That's one that you yeah. can't fake. And so, um, that one's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that mm-hmm. that one would have made the list, but once it does, you're like, yeah, yeah, that really does make sense. Yeah, and I feel like that could be applied to like extended family, like some of the some of the family drama that we have or, or like even church family in a sense as well that like there is there does seem to be a chaos in families. I feel like I hear those stories all the time. All right. Um, number six, she says uh, a strategy against your calling. The enemy amplifies fear, worry, and anxiety until they're the loudest voices in your head, causing you to deem the adventure of following God too risky to attempt. Mm-hmm. Strategy seven against your purity. The enemy tries to tempt you towards certain sins, convincing you that you can tolerate them without risking consequence, knowing they'll only wedge distance between you and God. Hmm. Have any thoughts on those two? The purity one, like another, I think that's your temptation one, right? Like it is Mm -hmm. that we know that Satan is a tempter. We know the enemy is a tempter. Uh, And, you know, if it's not going to be just strict unbelief or rejection of your faith, then uh, what, you know, how do we describe the Christian life? You know, throw off the sin that so easily entangles and Mm. run the race. Uh, when, when we are caught up in sin, we are, uh, that's going to be antithetical to a growing relationship with Jesus. And and so it makes Mm -hmm. sense that, uh, that, that would be something that trips us up. Uh, so yeah, that's, that one's an interesting one that, that the temptation of towards your purity. Okay, here's strategy number eight. We could probably talk about this one for a while. Against your rest and contentment, Mm. the enemy hopes to overload your life and schedule, pressuring you to constantly push beyond your limits, never feeling permission to say 
know. That, you know, you and I have talked quite a bit about the importance of Sabbath and rest and even like vacation as a Sabbath. And so I do feel like this summer, thinking about taking time to rest, thinking about time to get away, thinking about time to say no, think like that's a powerful act of spiritual warfare. Like the enemy doesn't want you to do that. And so it's important rest and contentment. I like that she paired those together. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I don't, I, I think we often feel guilty about rest, right? Like we, mm-hmm. rather than seeing it as a gift of God, rather than seeing it uh, as uh, necessary for our lives that yeah. we just can't run. Yeah. We feel guilty about, um, about resting. Like, oh, I'm too busy for this. Or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to fall behind if I don't uh, uh, and, and if you just run at a hundred miles an hour at all the times, you're not going to make it. And so, right. um, we have to learn to rest, uh, and, and, and see it as the gift that God has given to us. Yeah, that's, that's so good. I heard someone once say like, that's like the 10 command, like of the 10 commandments, that's the one we just ignore. Right. Like we're like, nope, we don't need that. Especially here that's in America. We see just right, let optional. me read you the last two. Yeah. The optional one. All right. Here's uh, nine and 10, Brian. Um, against your heart, the enemy uses every opportunity to keep old wounds mm. fresh in mind, knowing that anger and hurt and bitterness and unforgiveness to continue to roll the damage forward. That's definitely one I, I struggle with. I haven't thought about that as an attack. I, I do tend to like remember the ways I've been wronged and like dwell on it. So that's interesting for me to be mindful about. And then number 10, against your relationships, the enemy creates disruption and disunity within your circle of friends and within the shared community of the body of Christ. Haven't we seen that over the past Mm. couple of years? That's a good list. I, I think of number nine there that you read also of having, of being bitter towards other people, but also having a hard time um, embracing the grace that God has shown to us, like still Mm. living in the the weight of our own sin going, Oh, surely I'm not forgiven. Surely. And, And when we are weighed down like that and think that we're unworthy, it stops us from kind of moving forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought that was a good list. Maybe those of us can wake up a little bit to what our spiritual enemy is trying to do against us so that we can be more mindful and stand firm, as Scripture talks about. And hey, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back again on Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.